Coming up, will anything change after Westminster's dirty little secret was exposed? And are you poised to cash in from Brexit, or will your career be flushed down the toilet? The government, surprisingly, doesn't want to tell you. Hello, Paul Osborne here. Thank you for downloading the latest podcast. Just before we get underway in earnest, a quick reminder of our social media explosion. We have a shiny new, uh, kind of new website at partygamespodcast.com and we're on Twitter and Facebook at partygamespod. Occasionally, there's even a little video or extra to tide you over between podcasts. I know it's incredibly exciting. Anyway, let's get on with a week that is not going to go down as Westminster's finest hour. Everyone from the Prime Minister to the Speaker has been busily insisting there is zero tolerance of sexual harassment in British politics. Now, that's not true, is it? Because sexual harassment has been tolerated for decades. And these furious denunciations have only come about because some people have very bravely dragged that behaviour out of the shadows. In a way, the biggest surprise is that it's taken until now for this kind of scandal to erupt at Westminster. As one and then another one of Harvey Weinstein's victims spoke out, other people stood up to recount their own stories. It seems to me, at least, that the common thread in all of this is power, people with power, using it to coerce or compel people who don't have power. There is an opportunity here to confront and perhaps end this pattern of behaviour. But with it, it seems also a risk that our insatiable appetite for gossip will obscure the central issue, allowing those wrongdoers to avoid being held to account and preventing any real change. Not the most cheerful uh, topic to start a podcast with, and uh, Robert Meakin joins me. Um, Robert, as we record this particular podcast, we're just getting news of Sir Michael Fallon's resignation as Defence Secretary. Now, this the first high-level resignation, probably not the last that we're going to see in this scandal. And of course, Fallon apologised for touching a journalist's knee initially. And the journalist, it was Julia Hartley Brewer, who used to be the political editor of the Sunday Express, saying uh, at the time she just said she was going to punch him in the face. And she sort of considered the matter closed. He is now saying his behaviour has fallen short in the past of what would be expected. But if you we're doubting how serious this issue is and the potential for what it could do to the government. Here is the proof of, of just how big a deal it is. Yes, I mean, Fallon's resignation just gives you a sense that, you know, part of the House could come tumbling down here. It's it's very, very worrying news for Theresa May. I mean, it was rather titillating, the Fallon story initially, you know, idiotically putting his hand on a journalist's knee. Uh, she made light of it herself, to be honest. We thought, OK, it, it's embarrassing, it's a bit sleazy, but that's probably the end of it. Well, it wasn't the end of it. Now he's gone. His cabinet career is over. Who knows how how that particular story will develop? But what is absolutely clear is the fact that Theresa May's government looks like it's in trouble. She's obviously got to fill the post of Defence Secretary. Is she going to attempt a wider reshuffle? when this is still going on and we don't know the full repercussions of of the sexual harassment stories? She's stuck between a rock and a hard place because she'll be accused, as she often is, of dithering if she doesn't start making changes quickly. But as you say, she could make three changes, only four other politicians have to fall on their swords as well, such is the nature 
of this scandal presently. So she's in an unenviable position, to be fair, right now. When the Harvey Weinstein scandal broke a few weeks ago, we were then told, oh, of course, it's been an open secret in Hollywood. But he was so powerful that no one would ever dare speak about it publicly. There have been a lot of similar comments this week about Westminster that, well, everybody knew that this was going on and everyone kept quiet. How true is that? I think there's certainly an element of truth there. I think it was was broadly accepted that the House of Commons was a notoriously boozy culture uh, by night. You had a lot of MPs, obviously, with with young researchers, and that that obviously at times uh, things occurred there that wouldn't be deemed appropriate. So, yes, I think it's it's been known for some time. Now, the gravity of the situation, that's rather different. I mean, the, the story, Bex Bailey's alarming story, of rape takes things on to obviously a very, very different level. But in terms of that day-to-day understanding, yes, it could get a bit sleazy in the House of Commons with drunken MPs behaving in an inappropriate way. Yeah, that was an open secret. What about this idea that the whips on all sides have kept, whether literally or figuratively, a sort of a little black book of MPs' misdemeanours and may in some cases have actually been helping to conceal or cover up some misdeeds in the hope of ensuring their compliance in the future when difficult votes come along. I mean, we know that went on back in the 70s because we've seen documentaries have talked to whips in the 70s who've said that they did it. And certainly Downing Street hasn't denied the report in the last couple of weeks that the Prime Minister is still getting updates every week about what her MPs are up to. Yeah, it all gets very house of cards, but there's got to be some truth in it still. Yes, perhaps it was perhaps it was more extreme, you say, back in the 1970s where when there was real blackmail going on of, of MPs with dirty secrets. But I still think that probably exists in a, in a modernised form. I, if whips are doing their, their job correctly, they know everything about, about the habits, not only politically, but probably to a degree personally. Of the of their party's MPs, so logic suggests that yes, they would have an in inverted commas dirt on some of their colleagues. But the, the ethical question is: there's a difference between knowing that an MP has a a gambling addiction, say, and saying, well, it'd be terrible if the local paper were to find out how much money you throw down the bin at the GGs. There's a difference between that and saying, oh, this MP has been sexually harassing his stuff on and off for decades, we'll put that in the little black book and we'll hold it for future reference. There's a point, surely, where it becomes a police matter. Yeah, and that is obviously the real grey area in terms of the morality of this thing, where is, is, is such and such an MP known to be a bit of a character and a bit of a sleaze bag, but he's essentially harmless, but uh, let's just keep this information on him. Or, as you say, is it something more serious where actually this guy's been a real danger to, for argument's sake, female researchers, but uh, we, we won't report it, we'll rather just use it for our political advantage. Well, this is one of the interesting things, isn't it? Because... As well as people saying, oh, well, you all knew about this. You've all known about this for ages. Another thing that people have said is, why are you not talking about this secret list of conservative MPs that's doing the rounds online? Well, first of all, it's hardly a secret. Ten seconds of searching on Twitter will will reveal the list for you. Secondly, some of those names are slowly being made public. Now, why are they only very slowly emerging? It's because there's a world of difference between hearing a rumour and being able to stand it up enough to publish it as an allegation. 
Because victims of harassment, sexual abuse, sexual assault, very often don't want to talk about it. Or, as we've heard this week, sometimes they're put under pressure not to talk about it, to keep it quiet. And of course, fundamentally, it's not in any way the duty or responsibility of a victim of sexual harassment to speak out publicly. Thirdly, that list of alleged misdemeanours includes allegations, some of which would absolutely come under the remit of some sort of investigation, but also in there are claims that MPX is in a relationship with MPY, or MPX has had an extramarital affair, These are not the same things. Others in that list are in the list because they're gay or believed to be gay. I mean, that list may have some alleged sexual harassers in it, but it also has some people who it seems have been thrown in there for being gay or divorced. Yes, part of it verges, of course, or more than verges, on the ludicrous. I think it's difficult to to be that precise about these things, though, presently. As awful as that is... Yeah, on, on the one level, there are people who very much do deserve to be on that list, people who are guilty, potentially, of, of sexual abuse. But there are other people on there, as you say, who, who, who are on there due to gossip and innuendo, which is you know, undeserving of making such a list. But because there's been such an outpouring in recent days, because this issue has, has come to the fore, that was bound to happen. You're bound to get the, the real, real cases of concern and the trivia and the tittle-tattle rather rolled into one. There's going to be no monitor at this stage saying, well, that's on this side, that's serious and that isn't. We, it's been such an outpouring. That's just, that's, it, that's human nature. That's the way these things go. Now, I hope... Once that has settled down, we then get to the business of identifying the real culprits and the real problems. And much of this other stuff is, 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 as you say, it's peripheral and not deserving of being on such a list. Now, there's an article in The New Statesman this week that pointed out how few routes there are that you can take if you are being harassed by the MP you work for. MPs effectively are self-employed and they hire and they manage their own office staff. So... If you work for an MP and that MP is bullying you or harassing you, the line manager you are meant to complain to is that MP. And there's a helpline, but that helpline has absolutely no power to investigate or do anything. There is, within the way people are employed at Westminster, a massive gaping hole in terms of just basic employment rights that most of us take for granted. Yeah, it it, it looks extraordinary when we look on it from the outside. Having seen it to a degree on the inside, I I can certainly, you know, say uh, it is a pretty curious arrangement. It's completely ripe for abuse. It always has been because there's no, as you said, there's no mechanism to keep an eye on this, to monitor it. Now, for years, it's just been regarded as this rather eccentric thing. Well, if you're going to be a researcher for such and such, (laughs) expect a bit of trouble. Now, when we see it in in a fuller, more horrifying context, we wonder, well, how the hell has this been allowed to go on for so long? These allegations, as you mentioned, go as far as uh, the alleged rape of a Labour Party activist at an event six years ago. She spoke to the BBC, waived her anonymity to do so, and said she was encouraged at the time not to make a formal complaint warned that it could be damaging to her to do so. Now, Labour now is promising an independent investigation, but you can't ignore the reaction of some of the party's most vocal supporters, let's be honest, and call them trolls, 
who attacked the BBC for reporting an alleged rape and complained it was biased because they weren't giving equal time to that Tory dossier that we spoke about a few minutes ago that's littered with allegations that are, are, are nothing like as serious as that. I have a news flash for highly committed Labour Party activists. There are assholes in your party too. There are assholes in every political party. And if you think the best way to serve your party is to attack or malign victims of sexual assault, guess what? You are one of those assholes, and you are too stupid and too lacking in empathy to be in politics and you need another career. Inevitably, the, the idiot wing of, of the Labour Party has, has, has obviously been in evidence uh, with this. I have to say credit to uh, you know, Theresa May and Jeremy Corbyn. They obviously both realise this goes well beyond petty party politics. This is a, prob- a cultural problem in politics generally, certainly affecting the two main parties. There's no moral high ground to be had here whatsoever. Uh, if there are any, any sort of Labour members thinking, well, this is this is our chance to have a go at that immoral Tory party while we're squeaky clean, then they're living in Nether Netherland. This is a problem well beyond that. And I think now, thankfully, I have to say, because of the events of recent days, uh, both parties are being forced to address this issue in a non-party political way. Yeah, and you can see some positive signs that they are taking it seriously. They've got no choice. They've got no choice now. There is, as you say, there is a commitment there from the leaders of all the parties to actually work together and to look at the employment rules and to look at, at, at the uh, the best way to move forward, which is which is good. But you, you mentioned uh, no one wanting to make anything partisan out of this. We must briefly enter the ludicrous world of Jared O'Mara, who most of us probably hadn't heard of 10 days ago. Uh, The guy who beat Nick Clegg to take uh, the Sheffield Hallam seat at the election earlier this year. And we talked about how the common thread in these allegations is the abuse of power. Now, Jared O'Mara doesn't have any power. He is a sad, silly little man, but clearly one who felt empowered by the system that surrounded him. But when those past sexist and homophobic comments emerged... Some people inside the Labour Party, some senior people in the Labour Party were defending him. He said he'd been on a journey and and subsequent more recent allegations would suggest if it was a journey, it wasn't a terribly successful one. And he said it was a journey that would have been a lot harder if he'd been a conservative. The Labour Party is supposed to be about standing up for the powerless. It's not supposed to be about protecting homophobes. Because this was a few days ago now, I think we, we can see it almost almost in a historic context that Labour was slow to, to react to, uh, to understand probably the gravity of that, that situation. I think they were more nervous about covering their backs at that point initially. The cynical instinct initially with the idiot Omara was to, well, let's just, let's just be cautious here. Let's see if we can weather the storm. We, we don't necessarily want to be suspending an MP if we don't have to. Of course, the tide overwhelmed them because then more allegations came and they simply had to do the honourable thing. Now, as these few days have gone on, both parties, as we say, are being affected by this. I think now both parties are having to look far, far more um, active and sort of ruthless when it comes to dealing with this. Clearly, this does have a long way to go, but I 
can't help coming back to that point where we started, that if this becomes a quest to name cabinet ministers, senior figures who've done stupid or offensive things, rather than a process of challenging and exposing and stopping bullying and harassment, and in some cases, sexual assault. If we allow ourselves, as we are so often, to be diverted by the lure of gossip, then those people in power who have been abusing it will continue to abuse it. They will continue to harm other people. And ultimately, they will continue to get away with it. Well, let's move on to Brexit, because that's bound to cheer us up, isn't it? You may recall last week there was some confusion about whether or not MPs would actually get any kind of vote on the final deal before the UK leaves the EU. Well, David Davis, the Brexit secretary, warned that if the negotiations go to the 11th hour, which they almost certainly will, then we may already have left before MPs get a chance to vote. The Prime Minister insisted MPs would get a vote first. Then Mr Davis kind of suggested that wasn't necessarily certain. Robert, that vote, of course, is basically meaningless because if MPs reject the deal on offer, all that happens is we leave with no deal, and no deal seems to be the default position anyway. It's, it's, it's a rather confusing start at the moment uh, from David Davis. I mean, the reality is we're at, uh, we're at such a sort of complicated and uncertain time of negotiations. I mean, Davis is just basically acknowledging that, well, frankly, all those months down the line, anything could happen. But at least the government is preparing for Brexit. We've been worried that they weren't really making any preparations for it. But it turns out they've actually been preparing 58 times over. They've ordered 58 studies into how leaving the EU will impact different sectors of the economy. But we are not allowed to read them because apparently if they were made public, it would undermine our negotiating position. Call me a cynic. But you suspect that those 58 studies are 58 different word files in which there's a single page with the words, it will all turn to shit, written in large, bold letters. And therefore, our crack negotiating team don't necessarily want old Johnny Foreigner to know that. Yeah, it's pretty much uh, the last thing that Theresa May, David Davis and co would need right now. When, when you're in the heat of battle negotiating with Brussels, for such information to become public, which may well suggest that uh, we could be in a fairly grim state further down the line in, in the wake of Brexit, clearly it, 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 could, it could weaken our negotiation position. It, it could really, my God, un- unsettle the British public, already unsettled to a large degree anyway. So you have to have, I have to say, some sympathy for the government by saying, for God's sake, this is the last thing we need presently. The Labour Party has been trying to force the government to publish these Brexit impact studies. As we say, David Davis doesn't want to because he says it would adversely affect our negotiating position if everyone knew what a terrible state the economy may well be in. Labour pushed it to a vote in the Commons. The Conservatives, as they seem to do a lot at the moment with Labour motions, just decided not to take part in the vote, which means that that vote has passed. Now, the government has indicated that it is still going to ignore that and is going to refuse to publish the studies. It wasn't the point of leaving the European Union to restore control to Westminster, In which case, if Westminster says release the Brexit impact studies after a vote, shouldn't you do that? 
Yes, I think they're talking about a rather different Westminster further down the line. This present Westminster is a very pesky creature that's asking all sorts of troublesome questions about Brexit. And so right now, the Conservatives, the government uh, prefer to forget about the sovereignty of Parliament, which is a lot of this was all about, essentially, because right now, as I say, in the heat of battle, in the heat of negotiation, the House of Commons is a big pain in the arse to the government. Now, I've been trying to think that there must be sectors of the economy that stand to benefit from Brexit. We, 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 we risk being accused of, of what Andrea Leadsom would say, of talking Britain down, and we mustn't do that. So let's, let's come up with some sectors of the British economy that could actually benefit from leaving the European Union. For example, producers of Union Jack merchandise. I mean, they are going to be coining it in. Yes, that's true. I could, I could, I could see, I mean, if you just go around sort of Leicester Square in London, maybe all, all those um, those little tourist shops, maybe they should get some more Union Jacks in. I don't know. I mean, certainly the uh, the whole allotment industry could be booming if we were to believe Chris Grayling. Manufacturers of seeds. Yeah, absolutely. Because uh, our esteemed uh, transport secretary, I believe he is, Chris Grayling, suggested obviously that many of our fields and gardens should all just become big allotments. So that, that's certainly another possibility. We're just going to dig for victory. We're just going to dig for victory. Absolutely. Absolutely. Also, perhaps seaside resorts. If it's going to be harder and more expensive to travel to foreign resorts in Spain and France and Italy, I mean, come on, Britain. They're Skegness and Morecambe. Britain will be ready to be rained on in the summer again. Yeah, that's another possibility. So I, I think we've put a very balanced view there, to be honest, about the, the future of Britain under Brexit. A bold, optimistic view for the future. Now, all things considered, uh, it hasn't been a terribly cheerful week. So let's try to cheer ourselves up as we end by talking about Donald Trump, though admittedly, there is an inherent flaw in that plan. This past week provided President Halfwit with one of his easier tasks. Americans are inexplicably obsessed with Halloween. And so clearly they look to the holder of the most powerful political office on Earth to hand out candy and coat the White House in cobwebs. Now, one tradition is for the president to hand out sweets to the children of members of the White House press corps. Robert, you can imagine how this went. He congratulated the children on being so much nicer than their awful, awful parents. He congratulated the parents on doing a much better job raising their children than they had of being nice about Donald Trump. And then he decided that one little girl could have some chocolate because, as he put it, she didn't have a weight problem yet. Only a matter of time whenever Trump is in the public arena where something appalling, of course, is going to be said. And obviously putting putting Donald Trump into a sort of Halloween uh, scenario offers all, all manner of inevitable analogies. So, yes, he didn't disappoint. If, to be fair to Donald Trump, and that's not a phrase you will hear me say terribly often, politicians and children are a terrible mix. Just just Google those photos of Theresa May earlier this year in the election campaign, caught with a persistent look of horror as she was sat with a group of schoolgirls and, and pretending to be interested in them. We have, you know, thankfully moved past the phase of grabbing babies off people and kissing them. Uh, Jeremy Corbyn, I suspect, is probably the best politician we have in terms of dealing with children. Uh, but it's, to be honest, it's because he talks to them like little adults. And we had that riveting conversation about jam in a school in Lancashire this year. Some of the cleverest MPs, I use cleverest again with inverted commas around it, 
are often obviously the worst people to be let out among the general public, among the real people. I mean, you know, a, a Gordon Brown, you know, for all his intellectual weight, just never looked at ease when you, you'd, you'd see him with a, a normal British family. It just it just didn't work. You know, Tony Blair even probably just like looked like he landed from Mars you know, to get to get that sort of common real touch is a rare thing. Theresa May, as you say, just does not look comfortable in that environment. She was dreadful on the election campaign trail and needed to be kept away from real people. I think that came at, at a real cost to her. Corbyn, in fairness, is uh, does look very, very natural. And, he, and I think the trick is, as you say, when it comes to speaking to children, he just doesn't change. It, it, it looks natural. It looks seamless the way he's addressing them to the way he's addressing a party activist or their 46 year old mother. It, 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 it's a, a natural process to him, but it's a skill many of our leading politicians just don't have. Well, there we are. Politicians are not normal people. Weird. If there was ever a week when we were going to learn that lesson. Yes, well, that pretty much wraps it up uh, for this time. Hopefully, uh, next time, the news from Westminster won't be quite so depressing. We'll also be gearing up for budget frenzy. So I hope you'll be able to cope. In the meantime, we end with our reminder that we are on Twitter and Facebook at Party Games Pod. You can encourage your friends to sign up to the podcast at partygamespodcast.com and you can win our endless admiration by giving us a rating or review at iTunes. Don't you enjoy the graceless begging that comes at the end of basically every podcast? That's ours. Thanks very much to Robert. Thanks to you for listening. For now, goodbye.